Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Crowdsourcing Sustainability Podcast. Today, we are lucky enough to be with Dr. Elizabeth Sowin. Beth is the co-founder and co-director at Climate Interactive, which is a nonprofit think tank that specializes in making science-based tools to help people understand what actions are best for addressing the biggest challenges we face, like the climate crisis. Before Climate Interactive, Beth was a program director at the Sustainability Institute, where she worked at the intersection of system dynamics and sustainability for 13 years. I think it's also worth noting that she's had some incredible mentors along the way, including Nobel Prize winning biologist Bob Horvitz, MacArthur Genius Award winner Donella Meadows, and the renowned teacher and scholar Joanna Macy. And personally, I'm very excited to hear about these relationships as well. Uh, so Beth, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Ryan. Absolutely. So we'll be covering a lot of important and thought-provoking topics today, like multi-solving, systems thinking, the power to change direction, and your unique role and experiences at the UN climate meetings and, and a lot more. But I'd like to start, like I usually do, by taking a step back and hearing more about your climate journey, uh, and especially how it got started, because I think that that why is very important and useful for people to hear. So could you tell us when you got into climate and, and why? Yeah, it's good. That's a good question. And of course, it's always hard to pick a starting point. But there are a few kind of turns along the way that stick in my mind. So uh, you mentioned that I studied biology at MIT with Bob Horvitz, and I was studying neurogenetics and behavior. And I loved it. I loved doing science. I loved the questions. I loved the organism. But at the same time, uh, in my time off, like evenings and weekends, I was volunteering with a group that was called Foundation for Global Community. And they were focused both on nuclear disarmament and also on ecological danger. So this would have been like the, the mid-90s, 1995 sort of time period. And I do have this really clear memory. I did a lot of my research in the dark because I was doing microscopy. So I just sat by myself in the dark at a constant sort of cool temperature a lot. And I had a moment where I counted up how many people in the world were sort of conversant with this very arcane topic I was studying and how many people were really in need of this, these other topics that I was volunteering on. And so I kept going with the science. I was pretty close to finishing my doctorate, and I did that. But I decided to make the shift then from uh, where I thought I was heading to be kind of a, a researcher scientist to being maybe still a researcher but focused on sustainability. And that led me to connect with Danella Meadows, who you also mentioned. Um, she was starting a research institute at about that same time called the Sustainability Institute. And she was looking for basically a cadre of young people to help her do all the research she didn't have her own capacity to do. So long story short, I, I was able to make that really disciplinary leap from biology to sustainability and the method used at that institute was called system dynamics, which is a way of using computer modeling, computer simulation to help people ask what if questions about complex systems. So I didn't have much formal training in that. I took a few courses at MIT. I learned a lot. I read a lot. Um, and the first project I did at that research institute was on the agricultural economy of the Midwest. So we looked at the corn economy and the, the question was, 
why do these natural resource systems like forestry and farming, aquaculture and fisheries, why do they impoverish the producers in general and why do they degrade the resource base and what's the core underlying drivers of that? So that, that was kind of the bridge into sustainability and I worked on those resource systems for a number of years. And then I had two daughters in that period. So I had babies and toddlers at home and that sort of extends one's sense of the time relevant time horizons. And then another pivotal question about that time was was with a colleague who we still work with at Climate Interactive now, a key collaborator actually, John Sturman at MIT, who leads system dynamics work at MIT. And he and colleagues were doing research on people's, even sort of scientifically literate, well-educated people's mental models of climate change. And they were uncovering all these flaws in people's reasoning that led them to underestimate the risks of climate change. And I remember a conversation with John where he more or less said, you know, you're now trained in systems modeling and systems thinking. What are you doing about climate change, Beth and a few assorted colleagues? And I really felt that as a kind of call to like use these new skills and tools I had learned. And so that was the beginning of another sort of pivot towards climate change. And we started using and building on the work of others, including Tom Finneman, another colleague in system dynamics who had done a PhD thesis that was building a simple system dynamics model of the global climate. So we collaborated with Tom and others. Drew Jones, who's the co-director of Climate Interactive, you know, was instrumental in leading that as well. And as you said, that, you know, that led to lots of other twists and turns, including the UN climate process. And then for the last half decade or so, this idea of multi-solving that I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, it's really cool for me, at least to hear this, because you've been in this space and thinking about it feels like as long as most people, not most people, but like, I think of it like, as like Bill McKibben as one of the first people to really start talking about this. And that was back in what, like 88 or something. And yeah, I think the end of nature came out in 1988. Yeah. yeah. And you started thinking about researching, learning about this stuff, not too, too long after. So I'd, I'd also, I guess just real quick, I'd love to hear maybe just how you think the conversation has changed in that really long time span or what has been notable to you and how the climate movement has progressed. What, what comes to mind? I think I surprise people sometimes when I say how much I think the conversation has changed for the better mm -hmm. and how much more positive and hopeful I feel today than I did. And maybe that is the gift of, of now decades of perspective. I mean, I think climate activists and leaders can feel lonely today, but imagine, you know, 1998 or 2000, Around the same, it's actually another interesting fun fact. When Al Gore was going around with his slideshow, I didn't know that he was, but I had a slideshow about climate change. And I took it to church basements and town halls and libraries across the Northeast. And it was often the first time that people were really like, the implications were sinking in and I was delivering that message. This was me responding to John Sturman. He's like, what are you going to do about it? I was like, okay, I'm going to tell people about it. I didn't at first have the desired effect I, I wanted to have, which was, of course, help people find their way to contribute. I made a lot of people cry 
Um, I watched a lot of people kind of get paralyzed. People would leave the room. And that actually led me to to a a sabbatical, a self-informed sabbatical, because I said, I'm not having the impact I want to have. I'm having, this is counterproductive until I learn something else. And you mentioned in your introduction, Joanna Macy as another of my mentors. And that's where I turned. I was led to Joanna's work because she was really breaking new ground on this topic of how do we work with our really strong emotions about climate change, which are often anger or fear or sadness or some combination and not be paralyzed by them. And so at that point, I was technically a really strong scientist. I had my MIT PhD, and now I knew something about computer modeling. I hadn't, didn't have as much tools for my own emotions, let alone for being with other people. So I learned so much from Joanna that I, I still rely on today and eventually got back in it. But I, I modified quite a bit. I, I balanced the science We had some art in there. I collaborated with a friend who does shadow puppetry, which is the Indonesian art form. We made a a puppet show about a future in which people had responded to climate change. And so I would do the science and then Jay Mead was his name. He would do his puppet show. I really learned to talk about and incorporate vision. So trying to help people imagine what the world will be like when we have turned this corner. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a really powerful, powerful aspect. So just to circle back to your question of, you know, what's changed in the climate movement, for me, the biggest one is just there are so many more people who are activated from so, so many different areas. No longer is it just an environmental issue, right? We have such clear leadership from health and from business, and we could talk about ways that could be stronger. But yeah, that sense of isolation, of not really knowing anyone else who was as, as worried as you were. That was really tough in those early years for me. That's really cool to hear. I have to ask also before I get to my next question, is there any video on YouTube out there of this puppet show that you helped put together? Yeah, yeah, there is. I could send you a link for it. That would be awesome. I'll throw it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. We called it another connection to Joanna Macy. We called it the turning, which Joanna talks about. She calls it the great turning, the transition to a life-sustaining society, she says. And so we set the puppet show in a near future uh, when people are celebrating the first downturn in global atmospheric CO2 levels. And it tells a little story of how we might have gotten there. That's amazing. I'm, I'm excited to watch that. Okay, switching gears a little bit here. Can you tell me more about how and why Climate Interactive got started and just more about this work that you're doing now? Yeah, so Climate Interactive was a project for several years at the Sustainability Institute. Drew Jones was another student of Danella Meadows. So all of this work really traces back to that community of early system dynamics modelers. And the core work that we were doing together in those years There was me with my slideshow going around talking to people and the puppet show sort of outgrowth of that. Meanwhile, Drew was putting his time into collaborating with Tom Fiddeman to take that original PhD thesis, which was a system dynamics model of the global climate. And its goal was just to build people's intuition about how slowly that system changes. What does it mean for emissions to be balanced with the carbon dioxide removals, things that are, you know, pretty common in climate discourse now, just the core of how that system worked. 
And Drew and others were expanding on that. And one breakthrough that we had was to take it from a global model and start to represent the different groups of countries within the UN process. Because at that time, and you know, obviously still today, actually, as we head to COP26 in Glasgow, right? Countries are continually updating their pledges that they're going to reduce their emissions by this much in this way. What's the year right now? This would have been yeah, like 2004, five, something like that. And so we were doing two things that I guess made it unique. One was that these simulations ran on laptop computers. So while there was incredible global climate modeling going on, of course, at research groups around the world, those weren't really fast and they weren't really accessible. And so we didn't have nearly the spatial resolution, so we couldn't say what would happen in a certain grid spot on a certain part of the earth. We were talking about global averages, but we could, in a matter of tenths of seconds, help people see results. And so we found a real niche as people tried to understand and influence that UN process. Um, So the first thing we did was, uh, instead of looking just globally, we could now say, well, what if China did this? What if India did that? And so we could help citizens and journalists understand that sort of obscure process that was happening over at the UN. And then we realized that we could help the activists who are trying to influence that process and even some of the negotiators within it. Um, We had a friend and sort of an advisor, Dr. Bob Carell, who'd been involved in the UN process for years, and he called it deliberation with analysis. And the idea was in real time while countries are negotiating, they could have at least a rough sense of, uh, you know, would those pledges add up to enough? And I do remember um, the first time I learned that there wasn't before our work and a few other groups around the world who were kind of on the same track. Before that point, um, for years, countries had been negotiating about climate agreements without that rapid analysis. Um, And it was kind of driving blind. Everybody was throwing in their reduction pledges, not knowing actually if they were sufficient to meet the goal. Wow. So that was a that was a niche that um, we were able to help fill, which was a pretty exciting time for uh, a group of scientists to see, you know, that much relevance for what they were doing. Absolutely. Um, and so by the time of the Copenhagen negotiations, which was 2009, um, we had we had developed that into a pretty robust method. We created something called the Climate Scoreboard, um, which was a a widget people could embed in Facebook or on a on a, a newspaper website. And every time a new country made a pledge, it would instantly update. And it was like a thermometer and you could see the temperature in 2100. And, um, you know, oh, we gained a tenth of a degree because of a new pledge from the EU or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And so I'd like to hear a little bit more about what it was like to be an important part of these discussions, like at the UN, at these climate conferences, what are some of the the key memories that stick out for you, or some of the realizations of how this process was was working at such a high level? Because you know the great majority of of folks out here have no idea what it's what it's like to actually be there. For me, it's a bunch of contradictory feelings. I would say, um, on the one hand, that sense of an entire planet, 189, 92 countries, 
um, you know, are in one place and they are talking about the hundred year future and trying to make it work. So I would have moments when I realized that and that sense of a global civilization, a moment of reckoning, like it was that, that moved me, that feeling. Um, And then of course there's the gap because they're not quite accomplishing, you know, 20 plus years on they're they haven't been able to do what's sufficient um and so uh the sense of potential but then also the sense of we aren't framing this question in a way that we seem to be able to make traction on it um then the inequities that become clear as you start to see the process a little more you see the um you know the developed nations so there's a section of each cop, like a physical block of cubicles um, that are the offices for the delegations from different countries. And you start to notice that the wealthy countries have really nice, plenty of space and computers and, you know, the best coffee is at the German delegation and, you know, things like that. And then um, you, you start to notice that some small um, developing countries that are bearing the most impacts of climate already uh, actually don't even have enough representatives to attend if there's simultaneous sessions on different topics they have interest in. Um, they may not have a big enough delegation to be in all the places at once. And so um, kind of right before your eyes is the global inequity that shows up in the negotiations is sort of physically embodied there. Um, and then, you know, I sometimes think that the biggest impact of the COP um, is the global community that gathers uh, at some of these that the, the sort of more notable ones like Copenhagen and Paris, I think it's 35, 40, 45,000 people from civil society gather. Um, and so you, as a systems thinker, one thing we pay a lot of attention to is networks, because if you, re, if you re, rewire the connections in a system, you change how it behaves. And so you see that in real time, right? Youth from around the world are connecting. Um, indigenous people are connecting with labor unions. And um, I think the amount of learning and solidarity and connections that happens at every COP um, has changed and will keep changing the world. It's not exactly predictable. Um, but even in the years when the COP itself hasn't made huge progress, um, I always take heart in watching that civil society movement um, connect with itself. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, I have so many different directions I want to go in at the same time right now. Uh-huh. I guess before moving on from COP, I, we have spoken before about, I think specifically you mentioned how your team was staying up late, crunching the numbers of the new commitments that were coming in and how you'd you'd like print off the latest thing and run it over to like Barack Obama's advisor or whoever else, like these crazy high up names. Is there anything that kind of sticks out within those interactions with those really high level folks and how they were thinking about this? Um. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary of, of what it's like. And that particularly was, for me, was the Copenhagen um, round, which was, um, you know, there was so much global hope placed in that moment. Um, I, 
You know, I think I'll go back to that same contradictory feeling, like the high side of it was, um, you know, the power of, of science, like that we could, this small group of people um, could create a rigorous tool that was, of course, anchored on the rest of global science. Like we, um, it wasn't our discoveries about how the climate works. We, we were just building off of that entire field, right? So here we can, we can represent pretty accurately now how the climate works. We can project into the future the consequences of our decisions. Um, and then because of relationships between human beings, you know, we are steered toward the advisors who need that information and know how to get it to the president's science advisor um, and, and other advisors who know how to get it to the Chinese delegation. And um, a fair amount of, in, in real time, a lot of that was opaque to us. Um, you know, we weren't in those rooms. Some of it we've heard a little bit about um, in, in subsequent years and actually kind of stunning how deeply it did penetrate because it was so needed. Um, so that's the, like, that is actually amazing. Here's this species that ha- is able to look at its whole planet, is able to convene leaders, is able to talk about these long-term issues. Um, of course, the opposite side is the world looks back now at Copenhagen as insufficient, right? That it, it was this, um, you know, the two degree target really became the, the focal point of Copenhagen. Now we even talk about more ambitious 1.5 targets. Um, but our research, our analysis and other groups said the pledges weren't enough, right? They weren't on track for two degrees. Um, and this was, I mean, I can look back and see the hopes and, and uh, expectations, I guess, of a young scientist. Like I assumed that having that information was what was needed to unlock more ambition, right? It's a very simple feedback loop. There's a gap. Um, uh, earnest scientists point out the gap. The world closes the gap. Like that's the story of what I thought should have happened in Copenhagen. And of course it didn't. Um, and it was, it was a little bit of a cliffhanger, you know, negotiations into the night. You know, I think it went 24 hours longer or something than it was scheduled. Um, but it was also clear to me a few days ahead, I mean, not just me, to many people that probably we weren't going to get a lot more ambition. Um, and I remember in the, in the downtime that I had, just wandering around the COP, if I could get any climate negotiator's attention, which was hard because they, they had you know, more to do than talk to me, but um, I was already looking ahead to the next round you know, beyond Copenhagen. And I kept asking, what else could we modelers add to our tools that would unlock more ambition? And what I was thinking was along the lines of um, if we could show impacts, right? If we could show what would be, you know, how, how much uh, property underwater around the world or the impact of the, on the wheat harvest in Siberia and the U.S. grain belt or, you know, so I would just like throw, throw those ideas out, waiting for some negotiator to say, yeah, if you showed us that one, then we could make progress. And they never really bit. And finally, one of them kind of sat me down in a corner and, and what she said was, as negotiators, we can't go any farther than our presidents or our prime ministers will lose the next election. Mm-hmm. Like if it, it, it's, 
it was framed then and and to some extent still is now as this trade-off right of you'll take a political hit for ambitious climate action um and i came to see that this was because we were really narrowly looking at the problem um in the un discourse then especially and it um more or less now still you know the prime centered thing is greenhouse gas emissions of course global climate change that's a core cause of it um but the frame is so narrow that it, it mostly shows up as costs of action now um, for future benefit, which we can we can calculate. We know that that number is a lot bigger, like the avoided climate damages are much more than the cost of action, as you know. But those avoided damages happen long after the term of office of anybody in power now. So when the problem is set up like that, it feels like costs um, and that you can only go so far even though for the whole system over the long term, clearly the best and cheapest thing to do is ambitious climate action. Um, so that, that time scale issue, uh, I started to feel like was one, one challenge to the framing. Um, and then the other is, of course, that it's global climate change, yet we don't have you know, global elected officials um, to hold accountable. And, and so again, um, we now understand how much will get better immediately or near term and close to home with climate action. Um, and that's more clear every day when it comes to the health um, benefits of getting off of fossil fuels. In 2018, so like 10 years after Copenhagen, the World Health Organization said um, that the costs of um, being on a, on a path toward the Paris goals would be more than offset or more than outweighed um, by the health savings alone. Um, and that's mostly because air pollution takes such a toll on our health, air yeah. pollution from fossil fuels, yeah. um, and, and therefore on our health systems, on our economy, missed days of work. Uh, and that's before you even add health benefits of changing our transportation system. Um, you know, if people have a safe way to get adequate amounts of physical activity, like riding their bike to work or walking to school, um, that that impact on chronic disease is, again, is a huge windfall for the whole system. Right. And, and so this is the challenge. Um, even in the short term, it's a win for the whole system to get off of fossil fuels. Uh, but mostly we talk about um you know, this narrow boundary that doesn't include those health benefits. Uh, so, so that, just to try to wrap the story up a little bit, you know, that, that moment with the negotiator in Copenhagen, who is like, we can only go so far, um, led me to see that one contribution as a systems thinker um, that I and Climate Interactive could try to make is to help reframe the problem um, so that we can come to these solutions that that are um you know they're not just theoretical for the whole system like i guess i would say that's the that's the challenge that i think will be my work for the rest of my career uh we have the world health organization saying in theory sort of we could pay for what we have to do with the health savings but in fact we can't do that right because We've set up our decision-making and our budgets and our jurisdictions. So those are two different balance sheets and two different sets of decision-makers. And they, they rarely um, fully connect. And so 
that systems thinking, right, is trying to help see the whole picture. Um, and that's where I put a lot of my energy these days. Yeah, that is super interesting. So can we dive in a little bit more on what direction you're taking this work that you just mentioned you're going to be working on, you think, for the rest of your life now? Um, so it sounds like it makes sense to make these changes to you know climate action, getting to zero emissions. And it makes sense in terms of economics and short-term and long-term. And it's just like, you know, win, win, win. Um, anyone who, who reads my newsletter, I think, has kind of internalized this a little bit, at least, because I, I talk about it a lot. But you're saying one of the big issues is even though the system as a whole will benefit greatly from making these changes, the incentives on the more the smaller level, the individual players and the kind of siloed industries that might benefit versus the ones that might not, just the investments that need to be made either like don't have the budget for it or they don't have the right incentives where they need to be made, even though other places would benefit greatly. Like how do you, how do you think about that? I don't know if I'm explaining it right, but if you could just dive into it, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think you're getting it. Um, and, uh, this whole, so I'll say this whole territory is a, um, is an idea that I call multi-solving. Um, and just to offer up a definition, um, I think of multi-solving as when you can make a single investment or policy or action that addresses multiple problems at the same time. Um, and a little bit of a side note, but I think it's important for people to, um, to know the reason behind this word multi-solving, um, which I coined in around 2015. Uh, and I didn't do it lightly. Like, as you know, our climate field is full of jargon, right? Like, do we need, really need one more word? I, I wasn't sure. Um, the other way people talk about this potentiality, and this is how you'll see it in, in that World Health Organization report, they talk about co-benefits, right? Um, so the framing would be if we act on to reduce emissions, we'll protect the climate and we could have these co-benefits like less air pollution or more jobs. Um, as I started getting more into this area, I was led to projects working in communities where these co-benefits really all come together because, um, you know, there's the coal-fired power plant, there's the kid walking to school, she's breathing in that air, that's where it comes together. And what I started to realize was for people who were um, facing really serious problems caused by fossil fuels that weren't necessarily global climate change, um, it got a little murky. What was the, the core benefit and what was the co-benefit, right? Um, and I always say to people, if you're sitting in the emergency room and your kid has, is having an asthma attack, maybe the fifth one this year, um, and you say, we could get off of uh, coal-fired uh, electricity, you know, what would that parent say is the core benefit? They probably would say cleaner air with a nice co-benefit for the climate. Um, and and because, so the word multi-solving means we don't have to argue anymore what's, what's core and what's co. Um, it also starts with this stance of saying, I care as much about your kid with asthma as I do about the 100-year climate future. 
which hasn't always been true of the climate movement, if we're honest about it, right? As particularly the kind of white-led environmentalist conservation-oriented climate movement um, of privileged people like me who live in places that aren't particularly touched by fossil fuel extraction or pollution. Um, you know, and it leads to kind of transactional alliances like, oh, there's an important vote coming up. Let's see if we can get that community group online, as opposed to a real stance of solidarity, like we're going to create a new economy for all of us. Um, and of course, this is really a philosophy and a stance that's led by the environmental justice community. Um, and I think, uh, you know, over the years is becoming more widely embraced and definitely we see it in the Biden administration, um, many of their initiatives. So, so we're making progress in that way. But um, part of the idea of multi-solving is that I think that's a core stance that we put equal priority on all of these, um, all of these problems that, that appear at the same time. And I would, I would take that back to, to your question of, you know, so how do we move these from theoretical synergies to actual ones? I think it comes with that stance of solidarity and with this um, way of working together that that is based on relationships um, between communities, between issues, between problems. And it's it's been a bit of a journey uh, because my my first as a researcher and kind of a quantitative person, um, I definitely entered this from the wow, look at these numbers, right? This is amazing. Here's this report. Um, you know, another paper that really changed my thinking was from Paul Epstein's group. He was a researcher at Harvard, and they looked at the life cycle costs of um, electricity from coal. And if you put the data that they found in a pie chart, each wedge of pie is a different impact. And um, the public health costs of coal are way bigger pieces of pie than the climate damages. You know, that was another moment for me of here, here I am part of a climate movement that hasn't been connected really with a health movement or an Appalachian workers movement, yet we're all bearing these costs of fossil fuels. So that's like the theoretical basis, but where does that become real? Where does it become a force for policy or for changing investment is when you get all of those constituencies to be acting together, right? And, and if that's going to be durable, that starts at with relationships is what I've come to learn. Um, and yet relationships hasn't necessarily been the strategy of the climate movement over 30 years, right? You don't find very many funders even today who say, um, we're here to fund a broad and diverse and interconnected climate movement. You know, you find ones that want to fund a new technology or research and development or some particular policy instrument. Um, and sometimes I think of the lost opportunity if 30 years ago, um, the supporters of the climate movement, all of those foundations said, take your time, really get to the root of um, understanding each other, right? So urban communities impacted by air pollution, farmers, workers, indigenous peoples, um, where do all your interests meet and build genuine trust um, together? You know, then what might be politically possible, right? Um, drawing those connections that say, actually, uh, 
Interesting that the same people most impacted by air pollution also have the longest lines to wait to vote. You know, if you look at maps of air pollution and um, maps of barriers, barriers um, to lots of things, including just civil rights, um, those line up. Imagine an environmental movement so invested in voting rights that we we had addressed some of those challenges. Then what might be politically possible? Um, so multi-solving has just um, the hopeful part about it to me is that it's still so untapped, you know, that um, those relationships are still just beginning. And imagine um, a movement truly united around all the places that fossil fuels cause suffering. Mm -hmm. um, that's a pretty powerful, powerful movement. Extremely um, powerful. And it's exciting. It's exciting to watch it grow around the world. Um, so there's the political side of it. There's also... Um, the other really exciting side are, um, I would think of them more as investments and projects. Um, and so sometimes it's how a municipal budget could be redirected to solve multiple problems at the same time. Um, you know, so think about uh, many cities now are trying to, to plant more trees, um, things like green roofs and rain gardens. And they're doing it in ways where they're thinking about the urban heat island effect. They're thinking about more intense storms and stormwater flooding and how green space helps ameliorate both of those climate impacts. But they're also recognizing this could be done in a way that um, creates good jobs um, if, if we partner with, um, you know, the communities that need them most, whether that's youth or formerly incarcerated people. Um, and then can we put neighborhoods in charge of these projects rather than imposing them on them? Um, you know, there are projects with hospitals partnering with farmers to change uh, what food shows up in the hospital cafeteria. Um, you know, so those, the, there, are, there are projects where environment ministries and health ministries are working together to do energy efficiency um, upgrades of people's homes because of the energy savings, the climate, reduced climate impact, and the improved health of the people living in those homes. Um, and if they could be targeted toward uh, low-income homeowners, then there's an economic equity um, implication as well. So what we find when we look around the world is that like this type of thinking is everywhere. It's not always celebrated, and it's definitely not the majority yet, but we think of it as bright spots that shows what's possible. Um, and it's a huge so source of hope and encouragement for me just knowing about this work. Yeah, absolutely. For anyone listening right now who, you know, either wants to make this happen where they live or might be in a position of power where they can start to make this happen, do you have any advice on how to actually get that process started of multi-solving and connecting these siloed uh, industries or orgs within the community? Yeah, and my advice just comes from um, watching and studying so many of these projects. Uh, and it's they are so diverse, right? They're happening all over the world. They happen at different scales. They happen in neighborhood cities, nationally. Um, and they happen in different sectors. Like I already mentioned, the building sector, the health sector, um, the urban, urban planning sector, you could say. Um, and so 
in looking for how to encourage more of this, what we've realized is that the key thing is what do we see in common across all those examples? And those aren't specific things you do, but they're ways of working. So often we say multi-solving is a way more than a what. It's not a specific thing as much as a way of approaching things. Um, so with that in mind, some of the, the ways of thinking and being that we see from multi-solvers, um, the first one starts with looking around for the other problems that intersect with the problem that you're most passionate about. Um, you know, we're often trained, I know I was in my formal education, to take a problem and break it down into its smallest part to try to solve it, right? Multi-solving actually is the opposite. It says, uh, believe it or not, some problems get easier to solve when you bundle them together, right? So um, who, who else, what other constituency is also su suffering from this same um, challenge, whatever is on, on my plate. And so uh, if it comes to climate change, you know, you just draw a line back to fossil fuels and you ask, what else are fossil fuels doing in this economy? And so that will lead you to air pollution, cities dominated by automobiles, um, the, the energy burden, the impact um, of just the costs of energy, particularly on people with a, with a low or fixed income um, and so for, for climate activists, it's to look to, to those other issues. Um, then because relationships are so key, there's a lot of listening involved, right? You, you need to find who else is impacted by those problems and what, is, what do things look like through their eyes? Um, uh, one thing that we say is a barrier to multi-solving is being attached to being an expert. So... The flip side of that is kind of being a learner, I would say. Um, you know, if, if I'm a health expert, I may not know all there is to know about energy technology. So I'm going to have to be a learner and um, being comfortable with that. Uh, just two other things that we notice. The, be the best, the most common multi-solving projects we see, they often start small and iterate. They kind of grow organically. And so there's no one right way to start actually just start. Um, and the other thing they do is they carefully measure um, kind of the baseline, like how how is this community, state, wherever you're working when we started, and then what's changed as a result. And there, think really broadly. Some of the multi-solving projects we've looked at have created other benefits they didn't even expect necessarily, but they found them, they noticed them, and they documented them. Um, and it's those successes that will then recruit, you know, more funding or more partners. Like uh, a project we studied in New Zealand that was doing home energy upgrades. They were able to document the improvement in the health of the people living in those buildings. And that was an entree to funding from the health sector. And then that was a, a created an opportunity where now doctors can refer patients for home energy upgrades or recommend them, right? And so... Um, if, the, if they had only been focusing on, you know, energy savings or jobs in the construction industry, they might have missed that additional benefit, which meant they would have missed additional partners and resources. Um, so being really open to noticing what else is getting better and trying to tell that story. Yeah, that's awesome. So I have a question that I feel like ties several things that you've been saying together, or maybe it's 
going to be a little repetitive, but coming from a different, different angle. Um, and, you know, it gets back to, you talked about the power of networks that are made at COP and how important relationships are. Uh, and you've mentioned, you know, multi-solving and the emissions gap. My, my question is around, and I'm especially interested to hear your opinion because you have this background in systems thinking. Uh, and I know you've written about the emissions gap before. And so I'm curious, you know, if you backtrack from the emissions gap, there are these other gaps that need to be kind of filled. And I don't know if it needs to be done in order, if it happens simultaneously or what, but I know you've written about the power to change direction gap and the power to build the power to change direction gap. So I'm curious how you think of all these things together. Like, does it start with relationships? Where, where does it start? What are the first steps? And then how do you see these dominoes kind of falling to get to the closing that ultimate emissions gap? Or do you see it differently? Well, maybe first of all, to say, in case not everyone listening knows, um, the emissions gap yes, is, please. is also That's the, a great idea. Is the, um, <laughs> It's the name of a series of reports that come out every year that are hosted by the UN Environment Program. Um, and they started around the time of Copenhagen. And um, in those early years, I was one of the contributing authors, which was a, a fun, interesting process. I haven't been in that world for a little while, but it's this great service, right, where they um, they show the continuing and hopefully shrinking a little bit gap between where we need to be for global emissions and where we seem to be heading. Um, and of course, the way that emissions gap changes is by emissions changing. And um, the way emissions change is by all of the physical fossil fuel using stuff on Earth, all the cars and planes and power plants um, changing, right? So emissions come from energy use and then you know land use and other greenhouse gases. Um, and how does all that physical stuff change? Well, it changes from um, either investment, so what do we build, and retirement, what do we turn off? Um, and it changes from the amount of use, so do we get more efficient? Um, can we get more of what we need out of one kilowatt? Um, and uh, also it changes from, you know, there's there's energy efficiency, but there's also just uh, producing human well-being and meeting non-material needs, needs non-materially. So at least for part of the world, it's about becoming more clear what we need and, and what is extra, um, freeing up more space for people who literally need food, shelter, clothing, and um, transportation. So that, um, and that's, you know, part of what makes this problem can feel overwhelming is how many billion automobiles are there? How many thousand coal-fired power plants are there? And the, the way that gap closes is by those billions and those thousands changing. And of course, they can't change instantaneously. Some of them are capital that might live for 30 years with it, unless it's retired before the end of its useful life. Um, but each of those investment decisions is a moment of opportunity, is uh, how I think about it. And what happens at each of those points uh, that's what locks in the future. And it could lock in a high carbon, very risky future. It could lock in a lower carbon, um, 
potentially more equitable future. It could lock in a future that's healthier for air and water and people. Um, and so where multi-solving connects with that and where relationships and networks connect with that is what happens at each of those decision points? You know, it's, um, is it a new highway or is it a public transportation infrastructure for everybody? That will be influenced by, you know, a whole factor of, of who shows up for that city council meeting, that vote, that election. Um, and the vision of multi-solving is that we've pre-built or pre-grown such healthy webs of relationship across all the different areas that will be impacted by that decision that we show up with the power to make the good decision for the long term. Um, and one thing that I've really observed is that uh, there's not enough time once you notice, oh, okay, next month there's an important decision, highway versus uh, some public green amenity. Um, oh, it would be really good to connect the climate people with the health people because they both have a stake in this decision. I believe that's way too late um, and that the really smart investment is pre-building those relationships so that the health people and the climate people and the community folks know and trust each other. And then when these moments of opportunity arise, networks are able, because that's what you've created if you've done that, right? Networks are um, very adaptive. And so you don't have, need to know what decisions are exactly going to come um, if you've built that unified voice to be able to talk. Um, and so they can move into opportunities. They can move to play defense if there's dangers or threats. Um, political administrations can change and maybe there's more opportunities. That's great. You've got a network. It's able to take advantage of it or it changes for the worse and actually progress is under attack. It's okay. You have a network. You still know how to respond. Or, um, I mean, in some of our projects, in some ways, I feel like this last two years of the pandemic has been a test of this idea um, because suddenly plans can't work. We can't be together in person. We have to do something virtually or, um, and we've watched some projects with our partners um, be really agile and flexible despite this really, you know, who could have predicted changes that we're grappling with. Um, so, so those are another, another reason when I say, I expect to put the rest of my career into these approaches. Um, one is because it's the only thing I see that has the power to, to match up to the vested interests that are the forces of delay and denial um, because it's not just the environmentalists or not just the health folks or just the community folks. So there's, there's the power aspect, but then there's also this uh, flexibility and ability to change Course that a network has. Um, I think it's pretty clear. It feels clear to me um, as we watch floods, fires, uh, you know, highways in Colorado shut down for nobody can say how long. Uh, pandemic, we don't know when will end or where it's going next. Like we're moving into um, addressing destabilization while experiencing destabilization. Um, and, and so if it ever worked, those kind of like well, we're to make a specific plan and do a specific thing. I, I think the world will start being too messy for that to work very well. Um, but any effort you've put into building networks and relationships is kind of no regrets to my mind. It's there in an emergency um, and it's also there in an opportunity. That's a... So I hope, I, does that get it what you're 
Yeah, no, that that was amazing that you turned my rambling question into that wonderful answer. Um, So it sounds like in your mind, the key to really get going here really is about relationships and networks. And once those connections between people are strong, they're going to be able to adapt to whatever kind of is in front of them. Like what is the biggest issue or opportunity that is that they're facing within their sphere of influence. And because they have those relationships, they'll be best positioned or prepared to address it together. Is that kind of right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Um, And there's one more, one more reason for, for why I think this is a really important way of working, I would say. Um, so another thing that systems thinking teaches you is to go as deep as you can into the root causes of things. Um, and from that point of view, you know, CO2 levels and climate impacts, those aren't root causes. Those are symptoms, right? They're, they're symptoms of, to my way of thinking, a giant misunderstanding of who we are and what we're a part of. They're a misunderstanding of how the planet works. They're a misunderstanding of how to have good human lives together. Um, and there's also, um, I'm looking for simple words for this. Um, there's also, you know, a sense of, of other equally urgent crises. We know climate change isn't the only one. We know that um, there's rampant inequality, um, which is, you know, is ethically wrong, but also practically an obstacle to, to human survival at this point. So whether it's racial inequity or gender inequity, um, and we know that, that there's some kind of, uh, pattern similarity between how we treat the earth and how we treat certain groups of people. Um, and, and so when I, as a systems thinker trace down and say, well, what are root causes, um, that could explain um, misogyny and could explain racism and could explain climate change. I come to this paradigm um, that other people have, have called the domination paradigm, right? So sort of a sense that, you, uh, you know, the way to be safe is by having power over the earth or over other people. And, and that's not the only paradigm um, among humans, even, you know, among humans today, there's another whole group, a whole way of thinking that I would call partnership, right? That says that the way that we actually are safe on a living planet in a complex economy is by being in relationship, by caring for each other and working together, having responsibility to each other. Um, So the other thing about working in networks to address climate change, not only is it a way to have power, Not only is it a way to be flexible in unpredictable and turbulent times, but it's also a way to step out of that domination paradigm and work in a partnership paradigm. So it actually is um, aligning yourself with how you think, at least how I think um, the world needs to be for us to survive. And it's saying not everywhere in my life, maybe can I do this? Maybe I'm part of a hierarchical institution Um, Maybe I'm unlearning a bunch of habits that, um, you know, I learned through my life, but 
um, in coming together and saying, your kid with asthma matters to me as much as, you know, my worry about X, Y, or Z, uh, that actually is stepping into that partnership paradigm. And um, that's how we learn to do it, I think, is by trying to do it. Uh, and I think that's just another part of finding our way forward through all of this. So I hope that made sense. It felt a little uh, a little raggedy there, but... No, it, it definitely does. It also, it makes me think of uh, a couple books I've read recently. And I'm sort of, I've been wondering lately how much of how, how different would things be? And this is exactly what you were saying. I think how different would things be if we had a different understanding of who we are and the narrative that we tell ourselves or society tells us about who we are and how things work and where we come from uh, and our, our kind of our basic understanding of human nature in a sense. And the, the two books that I'm thinking of are Humankind. That one's by Rucker Bregman. It's like a hopeful history of, of humankind, I think. And then the other one's Survival of the Friendliest. But they, they both get to this idea that it's not just survival of the fittest, but it's maybe some of that, and then probably more so survival of the friendliest. And how we've really evolved through cooperation and community and we were like that for a very long time and we're kind of wired that way on some level and but that doesn't seem like that's the dominant dominant narrative today where it's much more about dominance and competition and individualism and so you know it's just something that i've been thinking about as well like how much how different would things be if our culture was was more about cooperation and community instead of competition, domination, individualism, and just how how much better off we would be, you know, not only if we hadn't been doing that for the last however many hundreds of years, but if we were able to turn a switch and start thinking that way and being in relation with others with that mindset going forward. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that a lot. And one thing I've really learned um, and, and it's a bit of an unlearning, honestly, uh, is to be really careful in talking about this, this about what I mean when I say we. Um, there's this trick that sort of happens in the minds of people like me, so I'll just name, you know, white, middle class, um, that comes to think of we as a sort of human universal. But actually, it's, um, you know, a particular culture that started in Europe that colonized much of the world um, uh, and is perhaps an aberration in its individualism and in its sense of hierarchy and domination. Um, and to remember that uh, those other cultures and ways of knowing have not gone away. They, they are here among us um, and that another opportunity uh, is to just turn more toward leadership and center the leadership of, um, I think, of indigenous communities, different wisdom traditions, um, uh, many immigrant communities within the United States who come from cultures that are more communitarian. Uh, so there, there can be unlearning if you happen to be someone who, who came up in, a, in that individualistic culture. 
um, sometimes that unlearning looks like stepping back, quieting down a little bit and turning to other, other leadership. And I think that's another positive thing that's, that's happening if you look around today. Yeah, I really appreciate you making that point. I think I find myself getting stuck in that language just because it, in my world at least, that feels like the dominant thing where I'm coming from. But I, I think that is super important um, on many levels, not only to recognize that it hasn't always been that way and that it could be an aberration, but that it's also a window into seeing how do we get out of it. And like you said, that's like more listening, more elevating these voices that have kind of been squashed and, and following their lead. One of the things that I find myself thinking about a lot is how different things would look if we integrated indigenous wisdom in their value system uh, more into the dominant system that we have today and how, how different things would be in terms of valuing nature and each other and just kind of worldviews would be just radically different. Yeah. And the literal uh, counterpoint to that is the land back movement, right. Of honoring indigenous land rights um, honoring treaties that are not being honored right now, for instance. Um, I think the statistic is that globally indigenous people control about 20% of the land, but steward something like 80% of the biodiversity. Uh, so it's, there's justice to that, but it's also just a very practical planetary survival strategy. Like let's put the people who know how to be in relationship with the earth uh, in control of larger larger patches of it 100 percent um so i know we're, we've been chatting for an hour uh, i have several more questions so i'm going to try to try to get to what we can here um and this is this is pivoting a bit but what advice do you have for folks who are just starting their climate journeys because you know this is such a big enormous, overwhelming topic. Um, and I'm just curious what advice you have. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of advice, but I'll try <laughs> to boil it down. Um, so number one is don't go it alone. Um, uh, it, yeah, there will be times when you feel overwhelmed. Um, make sure there's people you can turn to and then those people will have times when they're overwhelmed. So be there for them. Um, number two is because climate touches everything you can develop yourself and what you're particularly good at and drawn at in a drawn to in a way that will impact climate change. Um, if you love, if you're an artist, we need art that inspires. Um, we also need art museums that are zero energy. You know, there's like, you could throw out anything and I think you, you could connect it to climate change. So don't go it alone, stick to what you're good at and what you love. Um, we, I guess, honor your difficult feelings. Um, I always tell people uh, you're an animal whose life support system is in danger. It would be really weird to not be afraid or to not be furious about that. Like there's intelligence in those feelings. 
um, feel them, but don't let them paralyze you, you know, let them move through and take them as, as information. Um, and hang on to, this is be my last one, hang on to the possibility that we might be closer to transformation than we realize. Um, because my mentor, Danella Meadows, you know, opened this area of study about um, overshoot of planetary limits and the potential of collapse. I've always been really interested in like sudden dramatic change around the world. And so whenever I meet someone who's lived through that, like in South Africa or um, in Eastern Europe, with the fall of the Soviet Union, um, I just ask them for their stories. And the thing that comes through to me is that days before these momentous things like the Berlin Wall going down, um, uh, days before the people living through it didn't know that it was just days away. Um, and that these systems actually got more scary, more, more dangerous. Uh, I have a friend in the Czech Republic who says the repression was the worst, you know, in the weeks before it all collapsed. So you can't tell, and it could be decades more, right? You, uh, so just keep going because you really don't know. Um, uh, the other, the same friend in the Czech Republic said, uh, everyone had lost faith in the communist vision, but everybody thought they were the only one. Um, and so I think about that a lot. Uh, how close are we to everybody has lost faith in the industrial growth economy, but they think they're the only one. Yeah, just the silence. Yeah. Allows it to continue. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about, I want to I just want to hear a little bit more about your mentors, like how you found each other, what those relationships were like, and and what you learned from them. Because I think that's another thing, especially younger folks. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's just really useful to work together across generations and learn from each other. And I'd just love to hear what your experience was like in that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, well, I'll tell I'll tell one story about that, um, and it the moral of this, I'll tell the moral of the story first, which is don't be shy. Um, so I came incredibly close to not connecting with Danella Meadows, potentially the most important mentor who changed, as we've talked about, my work. Um, actually, she changed where I live. She changed many many things. Um, so I told you that I was volunteering with this environmental organization and um, my boyfriend and I at the time, he's now my husband, many years later, um, we were making these videos about uh, the global ecological system. So we'd go to a recording studio and you know, we made these videos and he's like, uh, there's this woman, Danella Meadows, and I think she really could like help us improve our video. I was like, wait, no, she's that world famous person whose writing has moved me so much. Like, this is just our crappy little video. We can't show that to her. And he's like, yeah, you're probably right. Um, but he did. He, I didn't know. I uh, didn't know it. But he basically went around me and knocked on her door and played the video for her. And she was like, that's amazing. That's so good. You should finish that, you know. Um, and that's how we got to know her. Eventually, when she was starting her institute, she hired us both. Um, so we were that close. And if he had listened to me, you know, we wouldn't have made that connection. Um, the video was 
it was okay. Uh, what I, as I worked with her for many years after that, I learned that anytime anybody brought her an idea, a project, a poem, she'd be like, that's fantastic. You should really work on that. Um, so that was her stance of meeting everybody. And I try now, uh, to remember that, um, as I'm, I'm in my mentorship years myself now. Um, so yeah, so don't, don't be shy. And of course, uh, the people you might want to approach um, might also feel lonely or under-resourced themselves, right? And so um, that young people or other people are drawn to you actually is a really good feeling. So be bold, knock on doors. That's, that would be my advice about that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, another question I have Again, I think this is useful for everyone, but um, it's because I particularly folks just starting, but it's really probably across the spectrum. You know, this work constantly thinking about and looking at the climate crisis can be really challenging. So I'm wondering how do you take care of yourself and kind of where does your strength come from? And just do you have any advice along those lines for folks? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, we already talked about one of the most important ones, which is that don't go it alone um, and go at it from the angle that gives you joy. Um, uh, the other one, well, and we talked a lot about honoring your difficult feelings, like don't, don't stuff them down, um, but welcome them. Um, and then I would say... What, ha what has been really important to me is cultivating in my life some parts of what I think the world we need to head toward will have. Um, so for me, that looks like um, living, I live in a place that um, some people call an eco-village or a co-housing community. So it's 23 families that share land, including a forest and a farm. Um, and we built our houses to be solar powered and energy efficient. And I have a composting toilet. Um, my husband and I and our kids, when they were younger, um, grow as much of our own food as we can. Um, and so that's not to say that's the only way. Of course, in the world we need to create, people will be living in cities with very low carbon footprints. And like, I'm not saying it's all back to the land, but I'm saying find the part for you. Um, that you think is part of this workable future and um, put it into place in a way that you can see and touch and feel. And I know there's a big argument in sustainability about individual change versus systems change. And um, there's some truth to we can't individually, um, you know, change our light bulbs out of this, that we need policy and political change. And I really, really agree with that. Um, but for me, that living what you think is needed is what keeps you going. I mean, I'm, I'm looking past a little uh, dot on my laptop out the window of my office and I can see just flowers everywhere because it's my herb garden and it has echinacea growing in it right now that's in total bloom. And I know it's full of monarch butterflies and, and bees and pretty soon we're going to dig it up and make echinacea tincture, which is what we're taking to get through the pandemic, right? And so... Um, and I have a happy owner of a Pfizer vaccine. So I'm not saying that it's like a Luddite back to some mythical past. Um, 
but that like sensory experience of, oh, that hot shower, that was a solar hot shower. Oh, that bowl of blueberries that I had with my breakfast, which I literally just had, you know, I picked those yesterday on plants, bushes that I planted 10 years ago. Um, so that's, uh, and when I feel like giving up, I just go pull weeds in the garden. Nice. Nice. That is, that is very helpful. Um, all right. I just have a few more for you. Uh, this one's kind of self-serving, but you're talking about the importance of networks and relationships. And one of the things that I'm really trying to figure out this year for crowdsourcing sustainability is how do we better connect people and kind of enable collaboration and really start strengthening all these relationships from people around the world. So I'm curious, do you have any examples that come to mind of people or orgs who are doing a really good job of building these networks or strengthening relationships? Yeah, I think there's so many ways to do that. And I think you're right. It's a really important question. Um, so I will superficially talk about just a couple to, to illustrate the range. Um, one of them is quite old and it's the Balaton group. Um, so because we've talked about Danella Meadows so much um, in the Set so in the 1972, Danella and her co-authors published this book, *The Limits to Growth*, and that was the system dynamics modeling study about the Earth's carrying capacity and the global economy's growth. And they were not embraced by the world, you know. Although they were, they were exactly right. Everything that's happened since has been consistent with with their recommendations. Um, and one thing that Dana and Dennis Meadows, her co-author and her husband at the time did, was they um, invited people from around the world who resonated with their message to a meeting, and they held it in Hungary. This was, um, of course, the Soviet Union was still strong in, in this time. Um, and so it was a way so people from the former Soviet Union could participate because they couldn't travel. Um, and every year in September, and it still goes on, they missed it because of COVID-19, um, uh, around 50 people from around the world, um, uh, you know, came together to talk about these topics. Um, now many of them are, like the founding members are close to 80, but they have students. Um, and so it's a global network of people who, um, you know, cheer each other on, share information, learn from each other. Um, they have a theme each year when they meet. So, so that's one way is like very in-person and maybe it's reached like 500 people if you count everyone who's ever gone to a meeting. So it's, it's small and pretty, pretty targeted, but I know really meaningful. Um, I would contrast that with at Climate Interactive, we have a program we call um, the En-ROADS Climate Ambassadors Program. So En-ROADS is this model we've been talking about. Um, uh, you can be trained to become a facilitator who uses it. Um, in fact, right now we're, we're training a, a cohort. People could still join at climateinteractive.org. Um, and our goal is to have um, 7,700 En-ROADS Climate Ambassadors. And that number would, be, if we ever accomplish that, would be one ambassador for every million people on earth. Um, 
folks are all over the world. It's quite inspiring to see see where Emeralds Climate Ambassadors are. Um, and you know, they use the simulation in some of them are teachers or professors, some are activists, some are within governments. Um, and because they're all over the world, we can't bring them together, uh, but we have an online forum or uh, Zoom meetups and things like that. And some of them who are geographically close eventually cross paths, which is a cool thing. Um, so maybe that kind of shows the, the extent of, or, you know, two different models, like highly in-person requires global plane travel, which has its downsides. Um, I think the, you know, maybe the modality, I think what that says maybe is the modality is not the most important thing. Um, it's the, what's the spirit with which you're engaging. Um, uh, and I think there's, there's still more to learn. So I'd be curious what you're finding or what you're trying as, as your journey continues. I will keep you in the loop. That is the yeah. one thing that I know that there's a lot more to learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that was, that was helpful. Thank you. Um, I'm realizing I should have asked something earlier that I didn't. Uh, how would you explain and define, maybe define uh, systems change or system dynamics to someone who's unfamiliar with the term? And why is it important? Yeah. Um, well, we often start by defining a system, which uh, what the definition that I like is, is a, um, a collection of um, objects or parts whose behavior is created by their interconnection. Um, so a pile of sand on the beach isn't really a system because it's not interacting um, but your liver is a system, a baseball team is a system, a government is a system. Um, and out of that definition that the behavior comes from the interconnections, systems change is often about changing the interconnections. So we've been talking a lot about networks. Um, uh, systems change if you change information flows. So if you think about a whistleblower who reveals you know, a pollutant, that would be um, a path towards systems change. Um, systems change if you change the laws or the rules, and sometimes those are literal ones, and sometimes they're just habits that everybody accepts. Um, and we also say that systems emerge from the shared beliefs and values and assumptions of the people within them. Um, and so thinking back earlier in the hour, you know, talking about worldviews and values and partnership versus domination. Um, sometimes systems change the most when the beliefs of the people within the system change. Awesome. That was super helpful. And Good. just quick follow up on that. Do you have any go-to resource or recommendation to learn more about systems change? Yeah, there's a lot. At Climate Interactive, there's an online course in, called Systems Thinking for Climate Leaders. And it's free. Um, so if you like video learning, um, uh, I think one of the best books is by Danella Meadows. It's called Thinking in Systems. Also check out, um, she has some short articles that are pretty famous. One is called Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System. 
Um, and uh, because none of those perfectly, I think, um, uh, share everything there is to share about multi-solving, I've been working on a book of my own, which I hope will be coming out in a year or so. It's on, that's its path. Um, and it's called multi-solving, but it uh, has a fair dose of systems thinking and then a lot of what we've been talking about of networks and worldviews and possibilities. Amazing. That is super helpful. <laughs> uh, Maybe we'll meet up for another conversation uh, on publication day. Or something yeah. Like that. Yeah. Happy yeah. to. Happy to. I know I will be reading that and I'm definitely going to check out uh, those videos and I'll, I'll link to the stuff as well in the show notes, the En-ROADS training, the systems thinking in terms of climate uh, free course that you just mentioned. I'll, I'll throw all this in case anyone listening wants to check it out. Um, my final questions for you are, these are quick. I'm very grateful for your time. Uh, what book or books do you recommend or give to people most? Well, we just said thinking in systems. So I'll say that again by Danella Meadows. I'm kind of striking out there. I think that that would be the one I would really. That's all we need. With. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people find you online? If they want to keep following your work. Um, yeah. So climateinteractive.org um, is a great place. And then uh, I hang out on Twitter a fair amount. I'm at Beth Solon and you can probably put that in the notes as well. Perfect. Yes. I will, I will definitely uh, recommend the Twitter account. I'm a huge fan. Um, and my last question is, do you have any call to action or final message you'd like to share with people listening? I think people should trust themselves. I think if you feel alarmed, you should trust that. It's hard uh, when it looks like the powers that be are not as alarmed as you are. Um, it's hard to have confidence, but I think you can, at this point, um, trust what you're sensing and uh, act on it with others. I love that. That is a perfect note to end on. Um, so Beth, thank you again for coming on the show and the really important work you're doing uh, and the whole team is doing over at Climate Interactive. So thank you. Great. Thanks, Ryan. I enjoyed this conversation.